0: Good morning, Sun West. Morning. How are you this morning? Today, as uh, Dan had said, is the first day of Advent. It's the season set aside by ancient Christianity to prepare for the mystery that we're about to celebrate at Christmas time: the arrival of God with us. God wrapped in flesh. The season of Advent begins on the fourth Sunday before Christmas, and while we in the West uh, begin celebrating Christmas, typically just after Grey Cup Sunday, uh, with relentless marketing and all sorts of carols and songs playing over and over in the malls, we at SunWest here want to set aside these next four weeks to prepare our hearts, to prepare ourselves to receive this great mystery into our lives and our hearts. God with us. And so as we prepare to uh, celebrate this anniversary of God's first coming into the world, we look forward to the many ways in which he comes to us now. And we look forward to his future coming in glory at the end of all time. One way that I've begun framing Christmas for me, was by participating in a missions team project two weeks ago. Matt has just uh, shared about his experience and some of the things that he did this past week, but two weeks ago, I was there as well. I and Pastor Matt, some of the others from Sunwest, were able to be part of a team who, over the past couple of weeks, were able to build again 30 houses 12 in my week, 18 in Matt's. What an amazing accomplishment, and we couldn't have done that without your support. Thank you, Sunwest. El Salvador is a developing country that has been devastated by civil war. It was also hit by a pretty bad earthquake, and more recently, as Matt had shared, gang violence. My week alone uh, provided homes for 12 families, and again, all these different stories were represented by pretty desperate situations. Matt's week completed 18. Thank you again, Sun West. Fundraising is something that uh, is a community effort. And we could not have done this without you. And as we sat down with the families around the tables, uh, we were asking them, so do you know where some of these houses are from? They said, well, you guys brought them. They said, well, actually, we are just representing people who actually brought them to you. We are their representatives. And so we wanted to make sure that they understood that you were behind all of this. It wasn't just us. One of the families that we built for was Carolina and her family. Her village was called Flora do Fuego, the village of fiery flowers. certainly had some blossoms, some fiery flowers that were the village's namesake, but the people's spirits were just as vibrant. The building of homes were the culmination of a year's worth of work that shelter had invested in each area. They would go into villages that were particularly hit by poor economics and hardship. They would get to know the community, they would raise up community leaders to help identify the families most in need of appropriate shelter. That meant that some of these houses were just little shacks with uh, branches holding up pieces of tin. And that would try to keep them dry during those rainy seasons that Matt was talking about. And so some of these families would just be so desperately in need. Well, Carolina was one of these local leaders who were raised up and then invested in, and then she invested in turn in considerable time in rallying her community, her whole neighborhood, to come and help identify the most needy of those families. She then called the community to come and help build each home. And so as we went in, all these community members were there to help as well. And what this usually meant was that whatever existing home needed to be cleaned out, it needed to be disassembled, and then the ground needed to be prepared for a proper foundation for the new coming home. All this preparation leading up to build week when we actually arrived would take about a year. And so understand that there was a year's worth of work going into this project for this particular week that we were involved in before we even arrived on the ground. Shelter would establish relationships within the community that we were working in. They were meeting frequently over the course of the year, culminating in the building crews arriving, which is where we step in. And then we were the last step of a years-long process. Pretty amazing. And by the time that we arrived, families were then already identified some having been on the wait list for a few years. And so the ground had just been prepared that week, just a few days prior to our arrival, and the community would come out and help with all the work. They would dig and dig, and then they would also help prefab uh, put together these walls that would um, uh, eventually be raised up and then topped with trusses. And as the roofing went up, we'd then meet with the families and sit down with them and hear their stories, and we'd pray together. And over And over again, we'd hear the stories of desperation. One of those you heard from Matt. We'd hear stories of abject poverty and the need to stay dry. We'd hear thankfulness to God and to shelter and to the church. That's you. Thank you on behalf of those families. And again, as Matt said, they were thankful for shelter, but also thankful for security as they are able to lock the doors and windows at night so they can actually get a full night's sleep without worry of harm coming their way. Can you imagine? We take that for granted every night. Well, friends, the folk that we helped were simple folk. They were humble, and they knew that they were in need. The beauty of it was all that we were part of the prayer, the cry for help, and we are a part of the answer to prayer. And this is the body of Christ working together. It's a reminder to me that God came near through us, the church, as we were used as Christ's hands and feet. So during this season of Advent, a time of preparation for Christmas, we celebrate God coming to us through the birth of Jesus Christ. It's a reminder to me that we are his flesh. We are his hands and feet. We work because God called us to help in the midst of a cry. The irony is that the creator of the universe humbles himself in order to give us a chance to know him. He came into a simple and a humble family from Nazareth. And can anything good come from there? It's kind of like coming from Panoka, which might be more known for its mental institution than anything else. I do have in-laws who live in Pinocchio. And the creator of all things comes into his creation, not with power and might, but with the still small voice of a little baby. Jesus, God, the son, was born into a poor family, not a palace, but a manger, a feeding trough, in a place where animals would typically reside, rather than humble Rather humble beginnings for a king. Even in his birth and beginnings, God is setting something up that repeats itself over and again in scripture. God values the simple. He values the humble. He entrusts himself to the people who know that they need him. We can see the types of people that Jesus trusted himself with quite vividly in the Christmas story. So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to Luke chapter 2 verses 1 to 20 or just follow on the screen above we're going to read through scripture at the time the roman emperor augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the roman empire this was the first census taken when quinerius was governor of syria all returned to their own ancestral towns to register for this census And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee, and he took with him Mary, to whom he was engaged, who was now expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. And that night there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them, and they were terrified. But the angel reassured them Don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord has been born today in Bethlehem the city of David and you will be rec- you will recognize him by this sign you will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth lying in a manger and suddenly the angel was joined by a vast host of others the armies of heaven praising God and saying glory to God in highest heaven and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased And thought about them often. The shepherds went back to their flocks, glorifying and praising God for all that they had seen, all they had heard and seen. It was just as the angel had told them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Over these next four weeks, we'll be asking, what kind of person does God reach out to and trust? This week, we'll be seeing that God entrusts himself to the simple the shepherds. The gospel writer Luke is fascinated by the fact that God worked among people who were disadvantaged, who were poor, humble, downtrodden. Jesus's first ambassadors and first visitors are not dignitaries. They're not religious leaders or wealthy landowners. The first to pay Jesus homage are simple shepherds. They are the minimum wage workers who literally do not earn a living wage. And they live well below the poverty line. And they were the lowest of the low in an agricultural society. The shepherds have little to no status in their world. And maybe they'd be like our janitors or any jobs perceived to be at the bottom of the social ladder. The shepherds are the humble and the poor whom God is now raising up to receive heavenly messages and an audience with the great king. Now this theme is repeated throughout the gospel of Luke and it continues on throughout Jesus' life. Over and over again, God connects with those who seem to have no worldly stature. Those who are seen as outcasts. Those who are seen as the simple So fast forward 30 years later on in Jesus' life, recorded in John 2, 23 and 24, the gospel record tells us that people were trusting Jesus, but that Jesus was selective of those who he entrusted himself to. Because of the miraculous signs Jesus did in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration, many began to trust in him. But Jesus didn't trust them because he knew all about people. Now, the shepherds may have been simple, but that doesn't mean that they were simple-minded or that they were simpletons. In Jesus' day, shepherds stood on the bottom rung of the Palestinian social ladder. They shared the same unenviable status as tax collectors and dung sweepers. Out of the four Gospels, only Luke mentions them. And during the time of the patriarchs, shepherding was a noble occupation. That was because Israel was a nomadic nation at that point. Everyone was a shepherd. Once they settled in Egypt, which was a farming nation, things changed. As farmers, the Egyptians despised shepherding because sheep and goats meant what? Death to the crops. They'd just munch them, eat them. Battles between farmers and shepherds are as old as they are fierce. The first murder recorded in history, biblical history, Cain and Abel, erupted from a farmer's resentment of a shepherd. You can read that in Genesis chapter 4. Now, the historical political background of this Christmas story isn't a side note here it is crucial to the christmas story conquering nations in the ancient world work in various ways in ancient rome it was no different some brutally destroy and plunder the nations that they conquer some conquer people as slaves or servants other empires allowed the people to remain in their land and work as before but with one major change the conquered people had to pay taxes to their rulers and i would Submit to you that ancient Rome did all of those things. But the purpose of the census that we read about in the first part of the scripture today, like the one that Luke describes, is to be sure that everyone is appropriately taxed, which really means it's being squeezed for every single penny. And to know who's in charge here. Jesus enters the world inside the borders of the world's most famous and Relentless superpower at the time, which is Rome. And yet he enters without fanfare from the world's governments. He enters into a simple family in humility. And so it's no surprise that in his adult years, Jesus teaches about humility. In his Sermon on the Mount found in Matthew chapters 5 to 7, Jesus begins with the backbone of the sermon. He says, God blesses those who are poor in spirit. And realize their need for him. For the kingdom of God is theirs. Now the word in the Greek, poor in spirit, is actually the word for a beggar on the street. The sense is someone who has nothing and they know it. So what Jesus is saying in this beatitude is the way into the kingdom of heaven is to know that we have nothing. And sadly, most of us do not think that way. Most of us think that we have actually something of import, only that something is what's keeping us from the kingdom of heaven. Now, it might be wealth, it might be position or power, title or a relationship. What Jesus is calling us to is something completely different. It's not self sufficiency or self reliance. It's really saying, I have nothing in myself to do any of these things that Jesus asks of me. I can't follow Christ on my own strength. I can't love my neighbor. I can't love my enemies. I can't keep my word. All of those things that come in the Sermon on the Mount, the way into the kingdom of God is to say, I have none of those things. And I need Christ in order to do this. Friends, the scriptures teach us that we must be humble in our spirits. If we put the word humble in place of the word poor, we will understand what Jesus meant. In other words, when we come to God, we must realize our own sin and our own spiritual emptiness and poverty. We must not be self-satisfied or proud in our hearts thinking we don't really need God. If we are, God can't bless us. The Bible says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, in Hebrew, poor means both the materially poor, like a beggar, and the faithful among God's people. The poor in spirit are those who have the heart of a beggar. They know that they are poor and that they are totally dependent upon God. This is related to the words of Christ in Matthew twenty-three, twelve: Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. In the Christmas story, the shepherds are an example of people who are humble, poor, and simple. How interesting that they are among the first to be entrusted with God, the good news message. God loves to speak to those who understand that they are simple, that they actually need God. John 10, 27 says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. God delights to speak to those who know him. Interesting that Jesus references himself as a shepherd, the lowest of the low. Friends, those who know God know that they need him. This is the very definition of humility. Humility. True humility is to see ourselves as we actually are. Fallen in sin, helpless without God. And yet biblical humility is modeled by God himself. Once again, the father descends to help the poor and afflicted. The incarnate son, the son wrapped in flesh, embodied humility from birth, through his life, to the crucifixion, and then even in his resurrection. The spirit of God d- dwells within all who call him Lord to give us life. It is he, the spirit of God, in whom we live and move and have our being. So how do we practice humility? Proverbs 3, five is a nice place to start. It's an excellent summary of the biblical meaning of humility. To be humble, we must have faith that God will lead us in the best way to live and how to avoid temptation. We are to put complete trust in the Lord, not deceive ourselves with our inflated self-perceptions or hungers. We should lean on the understanding, wisdom, and spirit of God to show us the path through prayer, meditation, fasting, and other spiritual disciplines. In order to do this, we must practice humility to open our hearts and resist the arrogance of our own egos. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Proverbs 3.5 says. Humility is the fear of the Lord, which provides a very precise definition. Not only does being humble consist of trusting God and following his will, but also understanding the consequences of neglecting his commands for truth, love, and mercy. Humility is recognizing the magnificent power of God and the consequences of actually ignoring Him, turning our back on Him. Humility is the fear of the Lord. Its wages are riches and honor and life. Now, the importance of humility is directly related to the deadly consequences of pride pride separates us from god as we do not acknowledge and appreciate god's sovereignty within our lives the importance of humility is seen in the deep gratitude we hold and proper recognition of god's grace and love for us humility's importance is also found in recognizing that we are actually flawed human beings we are temptation magnets first peter 5:8 says be sober minded be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Friends, we need to pay attention. Back to the Christmas scene in Luke 2. The shepherds were there, but where were the religious leaders? Where were all the VIPs in this story? The Pharisees, with all their logic and their answers, were surprisingly missing from the Christmas scene here. They were the religious professionals, the pastors of the time, the religious elite. They were the teachers of the law, the priests. But they were also the proud, the arrogant, the certain, the power-hungry. Later on in his ministry, Jesus talks about those who thought more highly of themselves than others. Luke 18 says this, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable, this story. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, you know, robbers, evildoers, Adulterers, or even like this tax collector here, I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus says, that this man rather than the other went home justified before God, and for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, thank you that I'm not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Oops, pressing the wrong button here. This was a parable. It was a story. It wasn't an actual event of two men who went to pray. But parables were based in reality. And in this parable, Jesus focused on two individuals and highlighted a particular character trait in order to contrast them with each other. In his prayer, the Pharisee exalted himself. And as he did this, Jesus said he was just praying to himself verse 11, he was certainly not praying to God because the Lord did not accept him in his arrogance. In verse 14, he was caught in a type of comparison trap. And as the tax collector prayed, he was bowing his head, acknowledging his sin, and begging for mercy. These are all indications that he humbled himself before God. Now, Jesus' parable Was not meant to indicate that tax collectors in general were humble, only that the one in his parable was humble. It's possible that he was an exception among that group of tax collectors. However, we do know that many tax collectors were receptive to Jesus and his teaching. Matthew was one of them. Now, this would indicate a measure of humility. And we also know, based upon the recorded interactions between Jesus and the Pharisees, that those whom he was referring to in this parable were generally pretty arrogant, self-righteous. To the point of this passage is when Jesus introduced this parable, he directed it to those who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and they viewed others with contempt. That was the whole point. And we see in this verse that arrogance does two things to one's perception, The Pharisees were confident of their own righteousness. The one in Jesus' parable never made an acknowledgement of sin in his prayer, nor just asked for forgiveness as a tax collector did. We must be willing and able to acknowledge our sin, our state before God. Otherwise, we will never be forgiven. Friends, that is so important. Arrogance clouds that perception of self. John wrote, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, righteous to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Friends, we must be able to admit that we are sinful people, so that we can actually repent, so we can actually turn 180 degrees and confess it, if you don't have someone with whom you can actually share these things, I want to challenge you and invite you to consider having someone that you can actually share these things with before God and to confess with others. Furthermore, despite whatever good deeds we may do, and the Pharisee listed several in his prayer, he was very loyal and very observant of the law. We're still unworthy. We can't earn God's grace. We have to realize that we have earned nothing from God. God's gift is all grace. His grace is all gift. The second thing that arrogance does is it affects our perception of others. The Pharisees also viewed others with contempt. The scriptures teach that God is willing to save anyone who will, who will fear and obey him. And Jesus did not die for a select few. He died for the whole world, as we read in John. And so while it may be true that others are guilty of sins that we think we would never commit, we must still not be conceited, but be sober and fearful because we can still be cut off if we are not faithful. Friends, we have to be people of sober judgment and not... Deceive ourselves that we are better than we are. We must always remember that God's favor has been extended to everyone, not just to us. Wise man said in Proverbs 16 18, Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before stumbling. The Pharisees were arrogant, they were pride filled. And because of this, they could not see their own sin and they could not see how God could accept certain other people like the tax collector. So the question for us today is, who are the Pharisees today? Are we one of those? The Pharisees are not the ones who are humbly seeking to serve the Lord. Instead, they are those who believe that they are better than others and that God, because of their righteousness, maybe owes them a reward, owes them something. Do we ever think that way? That because of what we've done or contributed, remain faithful to and loyal to that we are owed something? If so, you might be in good company. Many of us think that way from time to time, myself included. The problem is it's called a sense of entitlement, and we sometimes feel like we're owed something, and when we are sensing that we are owed something, this, friends, is not humility. God entrusts himself to the shepherds. God entrusts himself to the poor and the simple and the humble. Are we like the shepherds? Or are we like the Pharisees? You know, just before leaving for El Salvador on our shelter missions trip, the furnace in my house actually died. It was Friday, November the 11th, Remembrance Day, and the house just started getting cold. I'm just really glad on that day it wasn't minus 30 degrees. And as I did some troubleshooting with my brother on FaceTime, I, I really don't know what I'm doing. So I called my brother, who's a tech. He concluded it was the electric motor in the furnace. What else could I do? So I wanted a second opinion just to make sure, because I called RP's and they said, yeah, we can come down. We can even fix it and replace it today. Just $1,500. I was like, what? $1,500? But it's getting colder, right? And I'm going, what do I do? I don't want to leave for El Salvador and come back with a frozen toilet. (laughs) So I asked my neighbor to come over and take a look at it for me. And he's a mechanic. He said, sure. And sure enough, we were right. It was the motor. And through the miracle of the internet, I was able to source a motor here locally in Calgary, only it wasn't available on that day, Remembrance Day, because everything was closed. It's a stat for some of these companies but it would be available the next day, the day I was flying out to El Salvador. Oh boy, was I stuck, and I knew it. I had to take a deep breath, eat humble pie, swallow my pride, and go back to my neighbor and call him up and say, hey, Kelly, can you, can you help me? <laughs> Wouldn't you know it? He graciously agreed to pick up the motor from that warehouse. Take out the old one and install the new one, and then troubleshoot again. All while I was midair, landing in Dallas Fort Worth, waiting to now take off to go back to El Salvador, and he just sent me a, a text that I got at the airport saying, "Hey, everything's working great." I saw this picture of my thermostat; the temperature is going back up. Amen. Amen. Thank goodness for amazing neighbors. But I think the key was that I knew I couldn't do things on my own I was not self-sufficient there is no way I knew I know the Bible I do not know HVAC systems and so friends it's interesting to know how the Sunless team prepared ourselves to go and serve and bless the families that we encountered in El Salvador we were ready to bless others, ready to give of ourselves, ready to share the bounty that you had given to us to share with others. The truth is, is as we served and were indeed, we were indeed a blessing, we found ourselves being blessed over and over again by the people that we encountered through those families. We were blessed by God. And as we served the families who seemed so poor, we came in direct contact with our own poverty of spirit. They gifted us with abundant grace and joy. And they reminded us that we all need each other and that, most importantly, we all need God, our provider. Friends, let's close in prayer. Would you pray with me? God, as we gaze on nativity scenes and see those shepherds, help us to not lose sight of the fact that you chose a handful of shepherds marginalized by the higher-ups and religious elite to break the silence of centuries, heralding Messiah's birth. You entrust yourself to the simple, to those who are poor in spirit, and to the humble. Remind us that without you, we have absolutely nothing. Amen. we come to a place where we know that we are impoverished, that we need God, that's when we begin to understand what humility is and the poverty of the Spirit. Are you at a place where the Holy Spirit's calling you, come? You need me. It's okay. You can come. Have the courage to go before the king. Bring everything that you have that's holding you back, weighing you down. Bring your joys, bring your celebrations, but also bring your troubles. He's waiting for you. Friends, I invite you to pray, welcoming God into your life. We have prayer teams up here at the front we are willing to pray with you. And if you'd like to be a little bit more anonymous, you can also email prayer at sunwestchurch.com. we would be happy to pray with you over the phone or in person. But if you make this decision, don't stay silent. Share it with someone. Friends, thank you so much for coming this week. We want to encourage you to have a wonderful week. Again, Gary Pierce's celebration of life is this Friday at 3, and uh, we have a covenant community meeting after our second service this morning. Thank you for coming this morning. Have a great week. We'll see you next week.